using the Bible under the seat in front of you, you'll find that on page 1172. Over the last several months, we've been looking at the early stages of the growth of the church there in Acts, first in Jerusalem, uh, and then, and recently, as the gospel has gone out into the surrounding regions and begun to break through cultural and ethnic barriers. This morning, we see the stage of Luke's exposition, that stage uh, in in the areas around Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, that areas. We'll see that stage of Luke's exposition end, and the next stage begins. From here on, Luke is going to be focused almost exclusively on the growth of the church in the Gentile world, specifically the Roman world, as Paul and his mission commences. Now, as always, when we open God's Word, we need His grace. If you're able, would you please stand with me uh, as I pray for that and and for his presence among us and then remain standing as I read from uh, Acts 12 and 13. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word in which you reveal yourself, in which you teach us how we are to respond to you, how we are to lay our trust on you. And we pray, Father, Son, and Spirit, that you would be glorified this morning as we read it that you would restrain our sin and open our eyes, soften our hearts, that we would see clearly, understand, and apply faithfully this, your word. Glorify yourself alone in this, Father, Son, and Spirit. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, I'm reading from the, the last verse of Acts 12, and we'll read the first couple of 13 as well. So this is God's word. Starting from 24, the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now, there were at the church of Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, or Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fade, and the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Be seated. The story is told of a young man, freshly out of seminary, who was called as pastor at the first church, the first time that he'd been called as pastor there at his first church. Uh, He was reasonably, in my opinion, a little daunted by the prospect. Uh, But the recently retired, uh, long-term predecessor, the man who'd been pastor there for years and even decades, uh, was still there living in the area, and so he invited the older man to lunch. He said, sir, what has been the secret of your success here, of your long ministry? How did you succeed? What's the secret? The older man replied, the secret, young man, is two words. Right decisions. But how do you make right decisions? How do you know? Two words, wisdom and experience. Okay, but how do, you, how do I get wisdom and experience? Two words, wrong decisions. <laughs> That's a funny way of saying it, but it is true nonetheless. We all want the secret key to success, the shortcut that means that we don't have to make the wrong decisions. Which is why there are so many books trying to sell it to us. How to succeed in business without really trying. The seven habits of highly successful people. The winner's manual. Even, and I'm not joking about this, there is a success for dummies book. 
This is even more true when we start thinking about making spiritual decisions. When we make, you know, regular business decisions, normal things, we can look at things like balance sheets and productivity and what is going to, what has succeeded in the past and what is going to be, you know, effective to make things work. You know, it's all laid out there in black and white, objectively analyzed within an inch of its life. There are metrics and standards and goals and processes and then metrics for each of the steps in the process to meet the goal to bring you in line with the standard. But when we think about following Christ, it's rather less linear. Which to our perception, to our expectations mostly, most often means little more than, well, it feels like chaos and fog. What do we do next? When I worked with college students, easily, easily the most common question that they asked was some version of, what is God's will for my life? If I could, I could if I were feeling snarky, uh, answer that question by quoting just the first part of 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, that's absolutely true, but it's kind of short on details, right? It says nothing about your major or your career or your future spouse or anything like that. That was generally not considered a satisfying answer by those college students. Of course, as we get older, the questions change. As we begin to answer, well, who am I going to marry? I figured that out. What's my career going to be? I figured that out. The questions change, but there continues to be more situations, more issues for which we find ourselves wondering, what is God's will here? How can I know what God's will is in this situation? Or more pithily, more exasperatedly perhaps, what is God doing here? Now, whether that is a personal or family decision, whether that's a medical situation, job question, whatever, the concerns about the direction of the church or the nation or anything else, this is a live question. How do we discern the will of the Lord in any given situation? How do I specifically, in my specific situation, this problem that I'm wrestling with, how do I follow Christ faithfully here? How shall we now live? As I said in our passage this morning, we've come to a bit of a transitional point. So far in Acts, we've seen explosive growth throughout the community of believers as the Holy Spirit has been poured out in mighty ways. But there's been no organized growth, no intentional outreach by the church. Everywhere the gospel is spread, it has been because Christians, normal, everyday people, talked about other people about Jesus in their daily lives wherever they went. Missions as such was prompted by persecution at home, causing people to flee to a new place. Not aimed and directed by the church leadership, but simply the response of individuals to the situation in which they found themselves. As the heat was turned up in Jerusalem and Judea, believers left for other places because they valued their faith in Christ too much to turn away from that to avoid persecution. And so instead of fleeing Christ, they fled the persecution. And because they did, as they went to these new places, they talked to people about Jesus. They talked to all the people they encountered about who he was and what he had done. They did the jobs that they had the training and the experience for. They did the things that you have to do to survive in a culture that doesn't have any kind of social safety net. They did all those usual things. They told people about Jesus. They weren't missionaries in the sense that we use that term now. 
Generally, they had no education or training in God's Word beyond the level expected for every faithful Jew. But they believed the gospel. And so they told people about it wherever they went. And God worked through that in mighty ways. The gospel spread from Judea out into the surrounding, or excuse me, from Jerusalem out into the surrounding countryside of Judea, then into the old northern kingdom in Samaria, then further out to modern Egypt and Lebanon and Syria, and as far now even as Antioch on the border between Syria and modern Turkey. All because God's people were too excited about Jesus to just shush already, despite the promise of retribution from the authorities. Now, this process, of course, has continued throughout history. It continues even today. Uh, by the 4th century, this is how quickly it moved, by the 4th century, so 300 to 400 A.D., by the 4th century, we have records of local congregations in the southwestern portion of India, Kerala, and even as far east as China. The gospel spread rapidly and far because it spread as far as the Christians themselves spread. But as this process continues... Those who came to faith in those new places, as humans will do, began to coalesce into groups, into local congregations. Now, initially, they seemed to have considered themselves still part of the local Jewish congregation, the local synagogue there. But as the number of Christians grew, so too did the hostility of the Jews who had not come to faith in Christ. Until the Christians began to be forced to meet separately for worship and mutual encouragement. In the Lord's providence, almost as an aside, Luke begins to show us the first pieces of an organized governing body for a local congregation uh, as they consider how to move forward here in Antioch, how to move forward as a body. We know, though they don't, we know what's coming. Paul's missionary journeys and the, the explosion of how Paul goes all throughout Asia Minor and Greece and even as far as Rome and maybe even, though we don't have records of this, maybe even as far as modern Spain in his different missionary journeys. He will eventually make it all the way to Rome, preaching the gospel and training believers wherever he went. And Antioch in Syria, because there are multiple Antiochs, Antioch in Syria was his home base. That's where he continually would come back to and make a report of what had happened on his missionary journeys, what, his, what the Lord had done. But they don't know that yet. They just have a sense that they need to be doing something, that the next stage is coming and we need to do something. And how, how are we going to serve the Lord next in this place? Since we often have similar feelings, rarely know quite exactly what to do with them, it's helpful to see how they responded so that we can learn how we should respond. And we'll look first uh, at what, the, uh, excuse me, we'll look first at who they were and then we'll see what they did and a little bit of what comes about as a result. So first, who were they? There are five men listed here as prophets and teachers. And before we get to the names, what do those designations even mean? What does it mean to be a prophet, to be a teacher? Uh, however you read that, prophets and teachers, there's nothing in the text that specifically marks out which one of these five men those two names, those two titles apply to. Was some of them prophets and some of them teachers? Were all of them one or the how do we know? How do we mark it out? A lot of people have proposed all sorts of different ways to divide up this list. None of them are ultimately super convincing because it seems like it's all one unit. 
We know that the first and the last people on the list, Barnabas and Saul, have already been shown to be teaching the Christians, the new Christians in Antioch. That was, they, they are teachers, we know that, but they're first and last on the list. Both titles, I think it's best to see, uh, whatever the separation between those two titles, this isn't two lists, it's, you know, what, what, that would be one list of prophets and one list of teachers. Rather, it is one list of prophet-teachers. It's one office, as it were. Uh, maybe there's some nuance between those two things, but it's ultimately one office, and all five of these men were called to that one office, jointly called to exercise both aspects as they led God's people, drawing them to God's Word, communicating that Word to them, and helping them to apply it faithfully. In case you're curious, this is very similar to how we understand the elders to function. Uh, leading God's people, drawing them to God's word, communicating the word to them, helping them apply it. This is how we. This is where we get the model for modern eldership. In addition, these men tell us that in the city of Antioch was there was it was very uh, diverse place, drawing people from all over the known world. Saul, of course, is from Tarsus. You you know that Saul of Tarsus. Tarsus was about 150 miles by road. It was a journey of about 150 miles, but only about 85 as the crow flies. It's basically right next door, just across the corner of the kind of the northeast part of the Mediterranean there. Uh, Barnabas, you'll remember, was a Jew originally from Cyprus, uh, the island there in the, the eastern, uh, yeah, eastern Med. Um, Lucius or Lucius of Cyrene was from the north coast of Africa, roughly where modern-day Libya is. Simeon, Luke tells us, was called Niger, uh, which is the, from the Latin word for black or dark, almost certainly because he had darker black skin. And therefore, most likely was from some part, probably sub-Saharan Africa. I want us to notice something here. Back in chapter 11, this, is, this was kind of a small point then, but back in chapter 11, we heard uh, Luke told us that there was some of them, some of the new believers, uh, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, not just the Jews, but also to the Hellenists. I don't think it's a coincidence that two, maybe even three of the five men mentioned here are from Cyprus and Cyrene. Saul, of course, Barnabas had gone to bring in as a teacher. Uh, and finally, we have Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. And, and this needs a little bit of explanation because there are a bunch of Herods in the New Testament. And figuring out which one is which is a little complicated. Uh, so let's, let's take a minute to just make sense of this. Herod the Great, as he was called, uh, he was a king of the portion of the Roman Empire which included Judea and Jerusalem and a bunch else at the eastern end of the Med until his death shortly after Jesus' birth. Herod the Great was the Herod who issued the order to kill all the male children under age two right after Jesus' birth from which uh, Joseph and Mary and baby Jesus had to flee to Egypt, right? At Herod the Great's death, he divided his kingdom between his sons, two of whom were also known, known as Herod, just to make it more complicated. Uh, Herod Antipas ruled over Galilee, and a different Herod ruled over Jerusalem and Judea, although he, through some machinations, Herod Antipas, who was over Galilee, took over the whole area. I'm sorry this is confusing. There are a lot of Herods, but I want you to kind of tease out which one is which because it matters a little bit. Uh, this was the Herod, Herod Antipas, who the Jewish leadership appealed to during Jesus' so-called trial. Who, this is the Herod who had John the Baptist imprisoned and ultimately killed. 
This is the Herod who is referred to in our passage, Herod the Tetrarch. That's the one that Manian was a lifelong friend with. Um, then there's another Herod, who's the one that we encountered last week, who is the nephew of Herod the Tetrarch, who took over after Herod the Tetrarch was politically thrown out and exiled to somewhere else. So there's, there's three different Herods that play an important role in the Gospels and Acts, and it can be difficult to keep them straight. But Herod the Tetrarch, the one who killed uh, John the Baptist, the one who um, was appealed to during Jesus' trial, that's the one that Manian was the lifelong friend of, of Herod the Tetrarch. That word, lifelong friend, is a difficult one. It could mean someone who was close to Herod his whole life, but more commonly it means someone who was a childhood playmate, and in the case of families, ruling families, elite families like the Herods, uh, it probably implies someone who was adopted into the family to be a playmate, uh, someone who was a safe family that they could bring in and that way the child could have a playmate. Uh, uh, Manian would have grown up in the palace surrounded by the trappings of power, would have been well connected in that world, would have known all of the people and been connected in the elite and powerful there in Antioch, which was kind of the home base and ruling city of the region. But sometime after the death of Stephen, as the Christians began to preach in Antioch, Manian had come to faith in Christ. And he was now in God's providence, one of the leaders in the church, one of the teachers and prophets there in the church in Antioch. This was a diverse group, both ethnically but also economically, representing fairly well the breadth of the city itself and with a history of bringing the gospel to new places and new people groups. And now they were looking at, at, you know, they, they had become an established, growing church. They were beginning to ask themselves and ask the Lord, now what? Where, where do, what's the next step? We're growing. We've got this body here. What do we do now? How should we lead your people, Lord? And while Luke only names these five leaders, it seems likely that this actually, this moment when the Lord revealed his will, included the entire church because they were worshiping, they were praying, they were together doing these things, not just these five. Rather, these five are named because they're the ones who are eligible to serve in this new thing that the Lord is calling them to. Before we look at what they did, how, how are we tempted to pursue the answer to the question, what do we do next? What is your will for us, Lord? How are we tempted? What do we default to when we consider that question? Now, typically, I think our default is to treat decisions in the church as ultimately not that different, maybe not different at all, from decisions in any other organization. We know how to make decisions as a group, so we apply those approaches to the church as well. But that makes some assumptions that aren't necessarily warranted. Believe it or not, Margaret Thatcher, the former prime minister of the UK, once said this, Ideally, when Christians meet as Christians to take counsel together, their purpose is not, or should not be, to ascertain what is the mind of the majority but what is the mind of the Holy Spirit? Something which may be quite different. Now, as we consider how best to serve the church and lead the church, we put forth ideas and we vote and we discuss and we think about things. We trust that the Holy Spirit is working in that process and that's good and right. But at the end of the day, the vote is not decided by the majority, but by the singular vote of the Lord. If we have a proposal and it is unanimous in favor and the Lord votes against it, it will fail. 
period. If we have a proposal and everybody votes against it, but the Lord votes for it, it will succeed, period. The Lord's vote is the one that matters. One author said it this way. He said, I have not heard recently of committee business being adjourned because those present were still awaiting the arrival of the Holy Spirit. I have known projects abandoned for lack of funds or for lack of people or materials, but not for lack of the gifts of the Spirit. Provided the human resources are adequate, we take the spiritual for granted. This is our normal mode, but it is not at all the right approach. So how did these men of the Antiochian church, how did they approach this decision process, this discerning the Lord's will process? What did they do? They worshipped, they fasted, and they prayed. They worshipped, they fasted, and they prayed. Now the word that is translated as worshipped originally meant, you know I'm a word nerd, so bear with me for a minute. It originally meant doing public service at your own expense. Now you can see how that concept was first extended to the work of the priests in the temple, uh, and the, the sacrificial system there, uh, and then ultimately to worship as we know it. They were doing what the Lord called them to do, worshiping Him, serving Him. We confessed it earlier. What is the chief end? What is the main purpose for which we exist as humans? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. They were doing what the church is called to do. As we pursue figuring out, discerning the will of the Lord, we start by doing what God has told us to do. This should not be a, a, a huge shocking thing. We do what God tells us to do. We worship Him and trust that He will be at work through that. <coughs> Excuse me. Let's talk for a minute about fasting as well because they, they were worshiping and fasting. They were praying and fasting. So what is fasting? Uh, because that is not something that's well understood or commonly practiced in our day and our culture. Let me start by saying fasting is not a requirement. There's nowhere in Scripture that God commands that we fast. It's certainly not on any particular schedule. To require it, for me to require you to fast or to tell you that God requires you to fast, would be to go beyond God's revealed will for His people in Scripture. And I must not do that. Instead, it is a tool to help us focus. Not primarily our minds, though it may do that, but rather it is a tool to help our hearts to focus. If you've ever felt yourself distracted, having a hard time concentrating on something, whether work or whatever, you will recognize how easy it is to spend hours working and yet accomplish almost nothing because you're moving in 17 directions at once. Because your mind is distracted. You end up doing a little bit of many things, but not all of anything. Here's the thing. Our hearts can get distracted in the same way, though we recognize it far less. Perhaps you sit to pray or to read the Bible, but find yourself longing, even as you're reading, even as you're praying, you're longing for something else entirely, thinking about something else entirely. You read or you pray, but your heart just isn't connected to what you're doing. Now, this is not unusual. Just as it takes discipline and training to focus your mind on a task, so also it takes discipline and training to focus your heart as well. But that kind of heart focus is not really a priority in our day. It's not something that we are trained to do in school, that we are trained to do as children and as young adults learning what the world is. We don't train ourselves in that. And so when we get to be an adult and try it, it's hard because we have no training. 
fasting is one of the most helpful activities there is to focus your heart. Now, again, not a command, but it can be helpful. By temporarily abstaining from food, you are forcibly reminded of your body's need for food. And as you're reminded of your body's need for food, you're reminded that you are not able to sustain yourself. That you need the Lord. Every time you feel your stomach growling, let it remind you to pray to Him, to seek the Lord and beg for His spiritual provision for you, even more than you need the physical provision of food. This will be hard at first. This will be hard at first. When you first start, it will probably stay hard for a while because it's a discipline. Everything in our world says that you should satisfy every hunger you have as quickly as you possibly can. All that matters is your satiation. But the plenty that we surround ourselves with, the plenty that we gorge ourselves on, and I'm not just talking about food here, obviously, the plenty that we surround ourselves with is a lie if we're not filling our souls with the pursuit of the Lord in His Word and prayer. You can have everything in the world that you desire, be completely sated in all of your desires, and be starving for the one thing that actually matters. By all means, don't hear what I'm not saying. By all means, enjoy what the Lord has provided for you. Having things, enjoy things. It's not bad in itself. There's nothing wrong with that. But if it distracts you from Christ, then it is poison for your soul. I do not command you in this, obviously, but I encourage you to practice fasting. Use the focusing effects of hunger to discipline your heart to seek Christ first above all else. Start short. Don't, don't start with a, the 40 days of Lent or whatever. Start short. Maybe fast from lunch for one day. And instead of taking a break to eat, take a break and use that time to pray or to read the Word. If you choose to do so, if you do choose to fast, keep it between you and the Lord. The one command that Jesus does give us regarding fasting is that we should not let it be seen by others. Don't make yourself look miserable and, oh, I'm so hungry, I can't believe this is just just terrible. Because then you're just asking people to ask you about it. You're asking people to give you praise for doing this thing for the Lord. Instead, Jesus says, wash your face, comb your hair, and engage your heart to the Lord. That's Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount if you want to look it up later. Fasting is partly self-discipline but, and partly a reinforcement, a strengthening of prayer as our hearts are more and more focused on the Lord and not on the things of this world. It is practice turning down something you need so that you can turn to something you need more. And the more you exercise that muscle, the easier it is to turn down the things that you want but don't need and in fact really shouldn't have in favor of turning to something that you do need in the Lord. With their worship, though, they are fasting throughout, and throughout it and they prayed. They worshiped, they fasted, and they prayed. They sought the Lord's face in all things. One commentator argues that Luke here is showing us that corporate prayer is the cultic activity, so-called, 
which replaces the sacrificial approach to God, which was at the heart of Jerusalem. This is a huge statement. The central act of worship throughout the Old Testament was the Levitical sacrificial system. If you wanted to come close to God, you brought a sacrifice to the temple. That was the act of worship. As we move into the church age, believers knew that no further sacrifice was necessary. Jesus has done the sacrifice entirely. And instead of gathering to sacrifice, they gathered to pray, to seek the Lord's face. And this prayer was the central facet of their gathered worship, seeking the Lord's face together, begging Him to be present among them and to work. Of course, they continued studying God's Word. Of course, they did. Of course, they continued to sing His praise and do all of the elements of worship that we still do today. But prayer was their central focus in that day. Charles Spurgeon said once, I mean, he said a lot of things, but he said once, you can do more than pray once you've prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you've prayed. Maybe that sounds like a tautology. Maybe that sounds obvious. But the point here is that when we consider our actions before the Lord, whether sharing our faith or serving the community or engaging in corporate worship or building a, I don't know, building a shed out back, I don't know, whatever it is that we're doing, prayer is the bedrock. It is the foundation. It is the first thing without which nothing else works. If you build a building without a foundation, it will fall down. If you try and work for Christ without prayer, you will fail and it will fall apart. Prayer is the bedrock first step in everything. If we have not prayed, then we have skipped the most important first step of the whole thing. One famous author was asked, and I can't remember who it was now, but he was asked how he had time to pray. He was very busy, had a very busy teaching schedule, was all the time engaging with different churches and teaching and conferences and whatever. And he he was asked how he found time to pray given his busy schedule. And his response was this. I'm too busy not to pray. I'm too busy not to pray. Fasting and worship and prayer are ultimately statements of one thing, our need for Christ. They are reminders to ourselves and demonstrations to the world that we are not able to fix things or figure things out on our own. We need desperately and daily and momently, moment by moment, hour by hour, we need the Lord to act in our lives or we will die. Do you believe that? We need the Lord to be at work in our lives moment by moment or we will die. Now, I know we confess that. But do we act like that's the truth? Or do we act like, well, I I need the Lord a little bit, but mostly I got my life put together and it's fine. We need the Lord daily, desperately, or we perish. Do you want to see the nations converted? Do you want to see Brigham City converted? Do you want to see the Holy Spirit working mightily in our day as we read in Scripture? Do you want to see Christ glorified in the world? If you want to see the Spirit act, if you want to see the gospel grow and people believe in Christ, there is one requirement. Pray. Pray like your life depends on it. Pray like the world will fall apart entirely if the Lord doesn't act. 
pray desperately to the one who is sovereign, holy in control, who is powerful, fully able to do whatever he purposes, and who is good, unable to do anything but that which will bring glory to his own name and the best possible good to your life, Christian. Pray like your life depends on it, because it does. Give us Christ or we die. We often forget this, but as created beings, we always, whether we know it or not, we always live in daily, desperate dependence on the Lord of mercy. Now, He is gracious and He lavishes upon us all that we need. But so often we think we're doing something for the Lord when actually what we're doing is kicking against the goads as He tries to lead us along to holiness, to what He knows is best. But worship and prayer and fasting remind us over and over and over again, orient us to Him, humble us before Him, remind us over and over again of our neediness before Him and His mighty provision for us. Christian, if you want to know God's will for your life, if you want to know God's will for the church, local church, national church, worldwide church, whatever, if you want to know God's will for your church, for your nation, for your life, for the world, for your family, for your friends, for your next-door neighbor's pet cat, if you want to know God's will, if you want to be aligned to His will, humble yourself before Him in worship and prayer, possibly with fasting as an aid, not a command, just it's, an, it's a help. Humble yourself before the Lord in worship and prayer. He will hear the humble prayers of His people, and He will act. The Lord acts through the prayers of His people, and no, we don't understand how exactly that works because He is sovereign and He's already planned it all out, and yet He plans in such a way that He works through our prayers to accomplish His purposes. He will act because He delights to work in and through those who humble themselves before Him. This is the God that we worship. He is sovereign and He loves you. He is good. You have access to Him as His beloved child. Why would you ignore that? Why would you say, I don't need that. I've got it. It's fine. Go talk to Him. Beg Him to work and He will because He loves you, Christian. He is faithful. He cannot deny Himself. Let's pray.